Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. going to read from Exodus chapter 25 verses 1 through 9 in just a moment. Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Where would you visit? The Great Pyramid of Giza, Egypt, the Sagrada Familia of Barcelona, Spain, the Parthenon of Athens, Greece, perhaps the Colosseum of Rome, Italy. If you could meet anyone in the world, either past or present, who would you name? Many of us might name an old war hero, a popular athlete, a soaring intellect, or perhaps a deceased relative. If you lived in the nation of Israel, you'd go to the temple and you'd go to see God. Let us read Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them, verses 8 and 9, and let them make me a sanctuary, a place, in order that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people in this place. I ask that you would guide our thinking And that, Father, we would be overwhelmed with the singular thought that you have desired and designed us to be in your presence for our joy. Father, may that thought guide us. May it consume us. We do ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are looking at the tabernacle. By way of review, we know we've come out of Egypt. There have been plagues. There have been the Passover. There has been the parting of the Red Sea. They were then in the wilderness for a short period of time as they journeyed toward Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, chapter 19, you have the introduction or preamble to the law proper. Chapters 20 through 23, you have the content of that law. Chapter 24, it's ratification. We see and hear the heart of God. God desires to be with us for our joy. It is as we joy in God, as we know God, as we are in his presence, that he is glorified. And then in chapter 25, we have the introduction, as it were, to the construction of the tabernacle, the place where God will meet with his people for their joy. Forty percent of the book of Exodus is given to this idea of the tabernacle, 16 of the 40 chapters. The first occurrence of the word tabernacle in the Bible and in the book of Exodus is found in our text, chapter 25, verse 9. Here we read, here we see the heart of God. God's desire for us. And God designed us so that we might know the joy that he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and that joy is only known and experienced in his presence. Do you hear what I'm saying? To me, it sounds like I'm talking just words, but God desires to be in my presence, in his presence for my joy. That's amazing. God made you so that you would be with him for your joy. That is absolutely astounding. That is the heart of God. When you look at this particular text, there are four moving parts. The first thing we will note in verse 8 is the place. God has created a place where he will meet with us for our joy. And that place is where his presence dwells and where he meets us for our joy. And there's a purpose as to why God made this tabernacle, why it's being introduced to the people. And we'll trace that in the single story of scripture. And then finally, the pattern. Why does the tabernacle look like it looks? Why do we have all this furniture? Why do we have an outer court? Why do we have a holy place in the holy of holies? Why do we have a veil? Well, all of those things, all of the furniture, the tabernacle proper and the compound on which it is built, all of that speaks to a single truth. And at the center of that truth, at the center of that story, will indeed be Jesus Christ. But let's first consider the place. Notice what it says in verse 8 of chapter 25. And let them make me a sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary. Let Let them make me this place. The place of God is paralleled with that of Eden. And it's so important that we understand this because the scriptures teach a single story. And at the center of the story is Jesus Christ. In the very beginning, God created a garden. The intent of the garden of Eden was to have a place where he would encounter his people for their joy. He created Adam and Eve so that they might know and experience the joy that he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I exist so that I might dwell in his presence for his joy. But we have this parallel running, intentional parallelism running between the Garden of Eden and the structure and the building of the tabernacle. In the creative act of Genesis 1 and 2, seven times God says and God said. And then in the building of the tabernacle, there are seven acts, and each act is introduced by the divine speech and Yahweh said. And then you have the Garden of Eden described in the same way as the tabernacle, both containing pure gold and precious jewels, and they were both guarded by the cherubim. You have these parallel statements made. And then in Genesis, God rests on the seventh day, the Sabbath. The last instruction in chapter 31 is the reminder in the building of the tabernacle to observe the Lord's Sabbath. God concluded his work in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis with an inspection and evaluation of all that he had done. Moses, likewise, inspects and evaluates all that was done with reference to the tabernacle. That parallelism, that symmetry is intentional. Humanity in chapter 1 and 2 was made according to a specific pattern. As we have seen in chapter 25 of Exodus verse 9, the whole was to be made according to a pattern. And then finally, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by the account of the fall. That same idea exists in chapter 32 of Exodus, where you have the building of the golden calf. So you have this parallel narrative. And why? The tabernacle was to be reminding the people of Israel of something and of someone. And that tabernacle, that Eden, is seen both in the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, who is the culmination of that imagery. And then it carries over, and we've talked about this before, into the local church's body. This is to remind us of Eden, 
Here is where we encounter God for our joy. That's why I believe church should be a joyous celebration of the gospel. This is the good news that God desires and designed us to meet with him for our joy. That is the place. And then in the end, when we read Revelation 21, there's no longer any temple. Why? Because the vision of God for creating all things has come to fruition. The knowledge of God has gone global, where his knowledge is covering the waters as the waters cover the sea. The earth is being covered. God's presence is with his people for their joy. And that's what we see with the tabernacle. What's equally interesting is the descriptive statement, the tent of meeting. This idea occurs 33 times in Exodus alone. If we were to take time and look at chapter 40, we would see its occurrence in verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, verse 12, verse 22, verse 24. You get the idea. It's the tent of meeting. They would go to the tabernacle to meet God. God was there. God localized his presence in the tabernacle. Remember in John 14, and this is what's so cool about the John 14 passage in the Upper Room Discourse. In John's Gospel, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. The place he is preparing is that place where he will encounter us for our joy, where he will be with us. All of Scripture speaks to this idea. God has a place where he will meet with his people for their joy. The second thing we see inside the text, it says we are to make for him a sanctuary, a place, in order that so that he might dwell with his people for their joy, that he might dwell with them. It is amazing to me that God would condescend, he would stoop, he would, in a sense, humiliate himself so that he might be with us for our joy. It is interesting as you trace this idea through Scripture, Up until this moment, he appears to Abraham, he appears to Isaac, he appears to Jacob, he appears to Joseph, but he is not dwelling with them. It isn't until we get to this passage where the language shifts from appearing to dwelling. The word dwell in Exodus alone, listen to several of the passages. It says in Exodus 24, verse 16, and the glory of Yahweh dwelt or settled upon Mount Sinai. In chapter 25, verse 8, the text we just read, I may dwell or settle among them. In chapter 29, verse 45, and I will dwell, I will abide, I will settle among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. Chapter 29, verse 46, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. This is the shift in language. The other word found inside the text is to meet. It occurs in chapter 25, verse 22, when speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, that article of furniture that existed inside the Holy of Holies that the high priest would see on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Today is Rosh Hashanah. Jesus could come back today, amen? No, he can come whenever he wants. I'm totally satisfied with that. But the Ark of the Covenant in 25:22 it says, I will meet, and that's the word, I will meet with them there. God appears. In 29, verses 42 and 43, it's the same type of language. God is going to meet with his people. As we've already noted, this idea of tabernacle or habitation or dwelling place occurs first in 25:29. It's the first time it occurs in the Bible, first time in the book of Exodus. God's habitation, his dwelling place, 
is right there in the tabernacle. A God who is infinite localizes his presence for his people that he might meet with them for their joy. So we know that there is a place. We know that the place is where God's presence is going to be above the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally, the purpose. What's the intent of all this? What's the intent? Well, in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, Stephen is giving his speech before his persecutors. And Stephen says in chapter 7, verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern or type, two pots, the pattern or type that he had seen. It's the same language that's used in Exodus 25. And notice how Stephen describes that tabernacle. It is a tent, which indeed it was, a tent. It wasn't a permanent fixture, not until the temple, but this tent was to be a tent of witness. It's the same word that we get our English word martyr from. This is a place that pointed to God. It reminded them of God. So the tabernacle is constructed in chapter 25. At least the instruction is given for its construction. It's given in 25, and the purpose of the tabernacle is to point them back to the Garden of Eden. This is what God was doing for them. A seed promise, a blood picture. It was reminding them of what will be. God is going to dwell with their people, his people, for their joy. This is what God's doing. That's the purpose. Something we always have to remind ourselves of is simply this. Shadow and type can only point, it cannot provide. We have a tendency to make idols out of these things. But the tabernacle, the temple, even the Garden of Eden, and what will be the church... All these things are simply shadows. They're pointing to something greater. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we should be reminded of the fact that God has created a place where he wants to meet with us for our joy. That's God's purpose. It's a tent of witness. But here for me is where it gets exciting. Exodus 25. For the first time in scripture, we have the language shifting from appearing to dwelling, to meeting, to presence. That tabernacle was to be pointing them back to the garden, but forward to something more. And what's the more? Notice what the text says in Exodus 25, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So the whole compound, the whole tent or tabernacle and all the furniture in it and around it was pointing to something more, to a specific pattern. Listen to the language of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 5. It says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The pattern that they were to build after was given to them by God. God gave them a pattern that already existed. There was an antitype to the type. There was a substance to the shadow. And the tabernacle and all of its furniture and the compound proper was pointing to something more. There is this place. There is this presence. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern, the tupas. Everything about the tabernacle and its furniture and the compound proper was pointing back to and forward to. 
It was speaking to a much larger truth. Everything about this is about Jesus. Now, you have available for you is this thing on the tabernacle. It's in the foyer. Pick it up, put it in your Bible, reference it often. But if you brought it along and you picked it up, it tells you the dimensions of the compound proper and then the tabernacle. The tabernacle, and this is what's amazing to me, there's 2 million to 3 million Israelites, and they're, they're uh, intentionally laid out around the tabernacle, which was the focal point, the centerpiece, and this tabernacle was this big. It's 15 feet wide, so if you came up on the platform, please don't right now, but if you did, from this carpet line to that wall is 15 feet. From that stairwell to that stairwell is 45 feet. That's the entire size of the tabernacle. What's really cool as well, in Genesis chapter 3, when God put Adam and Eve out of the garden, listen to the language. It says, he drove out the man at, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Roughly speaking, that's east. So God throws them out of the garden, and they're now going that way. The way that they structured the tabernacle is they entered it from the east. Why? Because that's where they are. Now they're coming back into God's presence. So they're coming into the east. The first thing they walk into is the outer court. The outer court is 100 feet by 50 feet. And in that outer court, you then have the tabernacle. So they're in the outer court. The first thing they get is the altar, the brazen altar where the blood sacrifice is made. Then they walk to the brazen laver or the water basin, and they wash up. Now, when I say they, that's the priesthood. You can't do that, but they could. They wash themselves. They walk into the holy place. That's where I am right now. Here they have the table of showbread or the 12 loaves because of the 12 tribes. Over here, they have the menorah or the candlestick, bread, candlestick. Then they walk a little further, and there's an altar of incense. This is where the priests would offer up incense, their prayers. Then there's the veil. Then they walk into the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is next weekend. He walks into the Holy of Holies, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. It's roughly 50 inches by 30 inches or 4 feet by 3 feet by... Three feet by three feet by four feet. Two cherubim covering, mercy seat. Inside you have the three items. That's the place where they were to meet God. This is the place where atonement was made for the nations, for the sins of the high priest and the sins of the nation. That's the holy, it's 15 by 15 by 15. That whole thing though, the way the compound lays out is speaking of this whole believing process. Here's my justification, I walk in. I offer up sacrifice. Sacrifice is made. I'm cleansed. I then walk into the holy place. Here's the journey, the bread, the light, the incense. I walk in. Now I've got the presence of God. This whole thing is communicating to them this image, this idea. What's totally cool then, and and we won't explore every single facet of it, I did provide all of that information on this placard, which I would encourage you to look at. But there is a reason why Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Blood. There's a reason why he says, I am the living water, where we find our cleansing and washing. There is a reason why he says, I am the bread of life. If any man eats of me, he will never hunger again. There's a reason why he says, I am the light of the world. There's a reason why he's our advocate and intercessor with an altar of incense. There's a reason why he 
rips the veil from top to bottom. There's a reason why the language of propitiation is used concerning the death of Jesus Christ. This whole thing is about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the antitype to the type. He is the substance to the shadow. And we meet God in Jesus. Jesus will say in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Folks, one day we're going to be in a place where we will encounter the presence of God. And the person we see is Jesus. Jesus is all this and more. Think about the language of Scripture. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him to whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Moses spoke of these things. Well, where did we see Jesus? In the tabernacle, in the temple, in every item of the furniture. We have seen Jesus. Remember what happens in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and following. Then he said to them, the two on the road to Emmaus, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled because everything is pointing to him. And then you'll remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He begins asking him questions and Jesus explains to him what is taking place. And Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? How is it possible that you could miss the visual, that you could miss the content and intent of all these types and of all these shadows? God said, make me a place, make me a place, a sanctuary. So that for this purpose, I might dwell with you and make it according to the pattern and all of its furniture. Hebrews will tell us that the pattern was given to them by God. And it's, there's a, a pattern, a ta- anti-type, a substance from which the pattern is constructed. So that when they walked from the east into this area, it began speaking to them of these gospel truths. It all tells us of Jesus. And that is why we constantly come back to this singular idea that there is a single story, a unified story, and at the center of that story is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one in whom we encounter the presence of God. What do we do with this? Well, we know that Jesus is the true tabernacle. We know that Jesus in his body, the veil is torn in two. This is and ushers us into the holy presence of God. Jesus is the great high priest over the house of God. Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. Everything we could ever want or need is found in Jesus. But what does that do for us in the horizontal? What do we do with this? We stand up here on a Sunday morning and we say, Jesus Christ is truly enough in this life and the life which is to come. He's answered every question for us in the vertical. Amen? There's nothing more we can do. It's all been done. And yet, in the horizontal, it is messy. We're reluctant to say it, but amen. It is messy in the horizontal. It is interesting. We are still poor. We are still, it appears, in the horizontal, be in captivity. We are still blind. We are still oppressed. We are a broken people. 
And yet when Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he picks up the scroll. He's in the synagogue of Nazareth. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Folks, when you got saved, Jesus Christ was good news. That good news has not changed one bit. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive. You remember that. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has given us this promise, that in his presence, our joy will be full. Do we still struggle in the horizontal? Absolutely. Does everything go the way we want it to? But Jesus is God's final and fullest answer. The only way for his people to know his joy is in his presence. The only way for us to experience a love without condition, an acceptance without requirement, a forgiveness without limit, favor without merit, and service without reward is in his presence. He is the only one who gives us every one of those statements. Have you come to Jesus for your joy from sin and death? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, then I beseech you, I call you, I exhort you to come to him because he is God's fullest and final answer for your sin and death question. If you are a young person in our fellowship, young, anyone younger than me, and you're here because your parents brought you, this message is for you. This is the story around which all other stories revolve. It's Jesus and Jesus only. Jesus is the only place where you will find ultimate and absolute rest. There is no one and nowhere else in this world where you will find that rest that you can only find in Jesus. And I call you to rest in him. Jesus Christ is our fullest and final answer. Please stand as we close in prayer. Our Father God, it is with joy that we have these words from you that describe the tabernacle and its furniture in the following chapters. And all of it, Father, was designed in such a way as to point us to Jesus. You were telling them of Eden, and you are telling us of Eden. They looked backward. We look forward. And Father, it's all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is for us our burnt offering. He is for us the water basin, the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of incense, and he is for us that mercy seat which sits above the Ark of the Covenant. Father, he is everything. He answers all the vertical questions. And even now, Father, as we live in horizontal, as we live between two worlds, as we wait for the soon return of Jesus Christ, may we continually look to him to be the ultimate and only place where we will find our fullest rest. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.